Colossians chapter 1, um, we just finished the series Follow, even though the graphic's still up on there, so that's okay. We're going to something a little different now. Uh, next week, we'll actually be starting a four-week series just kind of on some traits of a disciple, some traits of a follower of Christ. So before we get there, we decided it would be good a good break time in between that to go and look at this prayer that Paul had for the Colossian people, right? This prayer for spiritual growth, this this prayer for people who Paul d- deeply desires to be changed, to become more like Christ, who he sees this need in people to become more like Christ, right? As we all need, as we all have that that need to become more and more like Jesus And in this process of sanctification, he prays this prayer for the Colossian people. A couple things, just backgrounds uh, on the church in Colossae was um, there was some heresy going on. There were some some things that were mixed in along with the gospel, right? So we see uh, the Colossians following Christ and loving people well. We'll see that uh, Paul commends them for their love. But they started mixing certain uh, ideas and ideolo- uh, ideologies along with their the gospel, right? The true gospel. So they might see um, how a, a, Jude- uh, a man who's in Judaism prayed and say, I like how this person prayers, prays, so I'm going to mix that with it. Or I like how this, this pagan uh, treats his family, so I'm going to mix some of these ideas with what Christ has called me to do. So we see some of this, and now Paul is trying to bring them back into perspective and bring us back into perspective of what it means to follow Christ. It's more than just a head knowledge, right? It's more than just what we know about God, right? And that was the problem with so much of so many of the Colossian Christians is that they were going off by what they knew, by their knowledge. And we see Paul calling us to something deeper than that. It's it's your heart, right? It's kind of kind of echoes what Jesus talked about in Matthew five through seven in the Sermon on the Mount, we see it is, it's much deeper, right? Our, our need for Christ is much deeper than just our morality. Our need for Christ is much deeper than just what we look like on the outside. Our need for Christ goes much deeper than that, than that. And the change that Christ brings goes much deeper than just our morality, than just how nice we are. Right? Christ is calling us to a different life, to be completely different people, people who are born again, who have been changed by the gospel radically, and who are being led by the Spirit. And we're going to see that here in this prayer as Paul opens up, starting in verse 9. So Colossians 1, starting in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. So what is this reason? We'll just go back to verse 8. Uh, sorry, go back to verse 7. Paul says, You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. Right. So this, this church was known for being a loving church. They, they loved Epaphras. They loved other believers. And, and Epaphras t- apparently told Paul about that love that they had in the Spirit. So Paul is saying, for this reason also, right? So for the, for the sake that, one... You have great love. I want you to continue to grow in that. But for two, for the fact that you have mixed other things with the true gospel of Jesus, um, I'm going to pray for you, right? He's saying that. He says, for this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. Christian, one thing we must ask ourselves is, 
How much do we pray for other believers? Right? Are we passionate about praying for believers? Right? Uh, Matt just brought up a story about the McElravies. How often, and this is just introspection, we all need to, to look at this, how often do we pray that God would radically change hearts? That God would radically change people in Malaysia. That God would radically use the McElravies to proclaim the gospel. That God would radically draw people to himself. That God would radically change hearts like only he can. Too often we are consumed with praying for the, the little things, the temporary fleeting things. And this, I don't want to minimize our fleeting things. I'm not at all saying it's wrong to pray for for sickness or for sicknesses for for healing of those sicknesses for healing of diseases for financial situations there's nothing wrong in and of itself but so often that those things become the focus of our prayer and not the weightier things that Christ would change hearts like only he can that Christ would open up our eyes that we would see and behold his beauty and his glory more and more that Christ would save our lost neighbor that is going to hell without him. How often do we focus on those things? How often do we focus on, on praying for God's will? Too often our prayers focus on what we want. Uh, I love the way William Barclay says this. Well, I don't necessarily love it. It's pretty convicting. But he says, it, it so often happens that in prayer we are really saying, Thy will be changed when we ought to be saying, Thy will be done. We, and we beg God, God, surely this suffering isn't your plan for me. I know this suffering isn't your plan for me. Your plan for me is the American dream to, to make all the money I can and to follow my heart and to have my dream career, my dream home, and my dream family. Surely this mess is not your plan for me. Surely this suffering and this pain is not your plan for me. And we oftentimes pray and pray and pray, Lord, change this situation in this person's life or in this person's life. Surely cancer is not your plan for me, Lord. What we are praying in those moments are thy will be changed and not thy will be done. And we, and we focus on the temporary fleeting things of this world and don't focus our prayers on kingdom, heavenly, eternal things. Like hearts being changed. Like people seeing Jesus and savoring Jesus in our own hearts how often do we pray for ourselves to see Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his beauty, whether that's through creation, whether that's through his word, whether that's through prayer or, or, or song or whatever that is, that God would open up our hearts, open up the eyes of our hearts that we would see his beauty. Can we say, like Job said in Job 42.5, after Job had gone through all that suffering, that before we knew of him, of God, by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Can we say those words? Do we see Jesus and savor Jesus? And this is what Paul is really, in essence, praying for them. He says, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. Do we pray for other believers? Are we passionate about the weightier things of this world? Let's go on. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So Paul is saying, I want you to be filled with this knowledge, right? He's using this word knowledge, this, this word that, um, of course, Gnosticism was big uh, in the church in Colossae. 
just this head knowledge of what they could know about God. And Paul is praying for something much deeper than that. He's, he's really using this term in an intimate way that we would know Christ in this intimate knowledge, right? Not to get too graphic, but it's really the same word that in the Old Testament when a husband knew his wife, right? And so we see this intimate, deep knowledge that Paul desires for Christians to know Jesus by. Do we desire to know Christ with this intimate knowledge? He's saying, we are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Do we desire what Christ has to say about our lives? Do we desire for His word? Do we crave Him and Him alone? Do we crave the knowledge that only His word brings, that only His spirit brings? Do we desire the knowledge of His will? Do we desire to be more like him? Paul deeply desired that for other people. He deeply desired that we would love Christ's commands, that we would love to follow after him. Too often in American culture, especially our religion, our following after Jesus has become just a programmatic type thing. Show up on Sunday, show up on Sunday night, show up on Wednesdays, right? Read this, check off this list. I have to have my daily devotion, so I'm going to check off this list. That happens within my own heart so often. I'm constantly, constantly having to see Christ anew and say, it's about Him. It's, it's a life change. It's not just a check mark on each day. Following after Christ is, is where we see Him for His glory and His beauty and say, that is something worth living for. Not my own dreams or desires but Christ and Christ alone. Do we love his word? Flip over to Psalm 119. We're going to read the entire chapter. I'm kidding on that. Psalm 119, starting at verse 97. We see as David's writing this, look at the words he uses for God's law, for, for God's instructions, for obeying God. Starting in verse 97, he says, How I love your instruction. It is my meditation all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are always with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, because your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the elders, because I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path to follow your word. I have not turned from your judgments, for you yourself have instructed me. How sweet is your word to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every false way. Christian, do we love God's word? Too often, again, in this programmatic religion that we have built, we say, well, God calls me to, to love my neighbor, so I guess I have to. And we try to do that in the most minimal way possible. But can we say like David, as he's writing this, that we love God's commands, that we love to follow him, that we love the weightier things, we love to pursue goodness and righteousness and holiness as David did. Not trying to get away with what can I, what is the least amount that I can do. But how much of, of Christ can I get? How much of Christ can I proclaim? Right? How much of, of Christ can, can I talk about with my neighbor? How much of Christ can I, can I make much of to others? 
Do we love those things? Are we passionate about Christ's commands? Are we passionate about following Him? And that's where I'm talking about this heart issue. And the Colossians didn't understand that. And too often we don't. I don't understand that. Too often I, I have this head knowledge and I say, hey, Christ has called me to do this and to not worry about this and to, to not do this and to do this. And we're known so often by those things, by what we're against, but not by what we're for, by what we love, by what we crave. Do we crave God's word? Do we crave him alone? Do we crave the knowledge, the intimate knowledge of him, of his will in all wisdom and understanding? Jeremy Adelman, who's a pastor in Minnesota, says it like this when talking about reading scripture. He says, imagine a man walking through the desert and in desperate need of water. When he finally finds a river, he experiences overwhelming delight. Kneeling down at the riverbank to drink, he is not asking himself, what is the least amount I can drink and still satisfy the thirst I have? No, he is asking, how much of this water can I possibly get into me? Like starving beggars, we don't come to God's word as a chore, but eagerly as nourishment for our hearts. How often do we treat God's word like that? Right? If we are really, if, if Jesus can say he is the living water and the bread of life that says something about us, that we are spiritually starving, right? And yet we say, how little of his word can I get into me and still get away with it? We might never say those words with our mouth, but we say them practically with our lives. I say those things too often practically with the way I live. How little of Jesus can I have? How little of his word can I read? How little can I pray and still get away with? Instead, we should be like this thirsty man who comes to this river and says, this is my greatest need at this moment. We should say that every moment of our lives. Jesus is my greatest need. I need Jesus more than food, right? He, he talked about all these things in the Sermon on the Mount. I need Jesus more than food. I need Jesus more than comfort. I need Jesus more than, than time. I need Jesus more than family. I need Jesus more than anything. We should see Jesus as that. And we should savor him and we should crave him each and every day. And Paul is praying that. Believer, how often do we pray that for our own lives? Jesus, help me to see you and love you more and crave you more and want more of you. And how often do we see church as a checklist? Well, did this this week. Had my devotional today. Prayed today. Begrudgingly talked to someone about Jesus today. How often do we say, Jesus, I want more of you Jeremy Adelman later in that article says, In the end, this is why we read the Bible, memorize it, and meditate on it. To get more of God's word into us. Because as we delight in the scriptures, it leads us to delight in God himself. As we employ Bible reading plans, habits of memorization, or strategies for Bible meditation, all of which are good, that is the goal. Not to check off the time as a duty fulfilled, but to treasure Jesus more as we see him in his word. Do we treasure Christ? Do we glorify him by the way that we treasure him? John Piper, I think, says it best when he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Are we satisfied in Christ? Right? Too often, we're not. We, we hunger for other things. We want other things. We say, I need Jesus plus this. Yes, Jesus is great, but I need this. 
I need my money. I need my career. I need my home. I need this country. I need my family. When in reality, what Scripture is telling us is we don't need any of those things. If all was stripped away, is Christ enough? Is Christ enough for our cravings? He should be, and He must be, and He is. Christ is enough. Christ should be what our souls thirst for and long for constantly. We should pray for those things. God, help me to crave you more and to want you more. Paul is praying those things for the Colossian people. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Ask yourself this question, Christian. This is just introspection. Look at yourself. Do you love to read the Bible? Do you love to hear biblical preaching or teaching, or is it a duty? Do you love to have spiritual conversations, and do they naturally flow wherever you're at, whether that's at work, at home, at the coffee shop, at a ball game, wherever you're at? Do conversations about Christ naturally come up, or are you having to force yourself and say, this is a duty I have to do? When, when someone asks you for advice, is the first place you, that you go to Scripture, His Word, knowing that that is, the, is where life flows from, knowing that these are the words of life. Do we love to worship Christ through, through song? Do we love to worship Christ in prayer? Do we love to spend time praying? Do we love to worship Christ with the way we treat others, with the way that we love others? When someone wrongs us, how do we treat them is our first reaction to say, and, and this too often happens with me, is my first reaction saying, I'm going to go after what I feel at this moment, or am I going to go after what Christ's word has called me to do? And the things that, the greater, weightier things that he has called me to. Do we ask that we would be filled with the knowledge of Christ? And we should pray also that, that others would grow in that same knowledge of Christ, knowing that Jesus is greater, Jesus is better, that Jesus is more glorious, that Jesus is, is worthy of following after, that Jesus, because of his authority, because of his grace, because of his mercy, because he is ruling and reigning as the sovereign king of the universe, he's worthy of, of following after. Do our hearts crave that? Let's go on to verse 10. So that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. So we look at that first phrase as Paul is praying this prayer, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord. We have to ask ourselves, how do we walk worthy of the Lord? Well, none of us can. None of us are able to reach that standard. We all fall short, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The only way to walk worthy is to be led by His Spirit. As we, as we follow Jesus, as his Holy Spirit leads us and guides us and changes us. That is the only way to walk worthy of Him. The only way is to be clothed in His righteousness alone. So that when God looks on us, He no longer sees our, our filth and our wretchedness, but sees Christ and His beauty, His authority, His power, His righteousness, His goodness. 
That's how we walk, walk worthy. When we abide in Christ through His Spirit, we will bear fruit and grow in our knowledge as we, as we continue on there, saying, so that you may walk worthy, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Do we desire to grow in that intimate knowledge of the greatest good in the universe, which is God Himself? And are we bearing fruit? Christ, Christ tells us that in His Sermon on the Mount. You'll know them by their fruits. Ask yourself again, this is not words to be meant to use against somebody saying, well, the, yeah, this person produces bad fruit. This person doesn't do this or this or this. This person must not be following Jesus. These are words that are meant for us to look within ourselves and say, am I bearing fruit? Do I love people? Do I have joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Do I, do I do those things? Am I producing those things? Those are evidences that I have been changed by Jesus. Do we love our brothers and sisters? Do we love our neighbor? Do we love and crave Christ with all that we have? Are we bearing fruit? Are we making disciples? Christ has called us to make disciples, to go into the world, to proclaim the gospel. As, as the apostles were doing that, we're going into the world and we're being persecuted and whipped and thrown in prison and killed for the sake of the gospel. And we too often can't even go next door because we're too scared of the awkward conversation that we may have. Instead of following Christ with all of our heart, we put him in a box and say, Jesus, your time is reserved for Sunday morning. Your time is reserved for Sunday night. Your time is reserved for Wednesday night. Your time might be reserved for 10 minutes in the morning, but the rest is my time. I can't do those things. Those are for radical Christians. And when we look in the book of Revelation and, and Jesus says, for lukewarm Christians, I wish you were cold or hot and I will spew you out of my mouth. Do we crave Jesus with everything that we are? Do we want to serve Jesus? Are we passionate about the greater, weightier things of this earth? Making disciples, loving others, making much of Jesus, worshiping Jesus. Or are we passionate about our own time, our own money, our own pleasures, our own desires, our own dreams, our own aspirations, our own goals? Or do we want to bear fruit and grow in our knowledge of God? Paul saw this as the greatest need of mankind, Jesus. Growing in our heart knowledge of Jesus. I have to pray that constantly. Jesus, help me to see you as more beautiful, as more glorious than anything else on this earth. I don't want my heart chasing after meaningless things that will not matter 10 million years from now. I want my heart chasing after Christ and Christ alone. Paul deeply desired that for other believers. Are we praying those things for ourselves and for others, that we would bear fruit, that we would grow in our knowledge of God? Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. I love, and I circled it right there. You circle it if you have your Bibles right there, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. It's not about how strong you are. In fact, just yesterday I was at a, at a football tournament and I saw a t-shirt that said, God gives his toughest bat battles to his greatest warriors. There's only been one greatest warrior. That's God himself. 
He's the only one who has, who has conquered Satan, sin, and death. He's the only one who died for you, who rose for you, who took the cup of God's wrath for you and drank it to the dregs. Jesus is the only one who's done that. He is the only one worthy of praise. He is the only one mighty warrior. God himself. And we rely on his strength, not on how great we can be, not on how awesome we are, not on our own righteousness, but on Christ's righteousness alone. Because what that allows us to do is look at ourselves in, in a rightful place, right? And, and put ourselves in a rightful place and say, we are not worthy of Christ. We are not worthy of saving. We are not worthy of forgiveness and of grace. But Christ has made us that way. I am not worthy of heaven. I am not worthy of being changed, of being saved. But Christ has saved me. Christ died for me and rose for me. And it allows us to put things in perspective. And now the way I walk, the way I live is not according to my own might, but according to his and his alone. Paul desired not that they would see. Notice he didn't say things like, you just need to look inside yourself and, and see how great you are. He didn't puff them up and say, yeah, you're, you're worth it. You're awesome. You're great. He said, I pray that you'll be strengthened according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. The only way that we can have that kind of endurance and patience is to follow Christ and Christ alone. Do we crave God? Are we passionate about him and him alone? The, The Greek word there for endurance actually means conquering patience in spite of trials and suffering. It's not just this endurance of, I have to get through this difficult day. This, he was talking about people who could possibly be thrown in jail and whipped and beaten and killed for the sake of Christ. And he's praying, I pray that they would have endurance. He is not praying so often like we pray. And I love, just a few weeks ago, we watched the, uh, the live stream uh, by David Platt called Secret Church talking about Malaysia. And he was, he was sure to emphasize, he emphasized, we are not praying that that. Christians' lives would become easy and they wouldn't be persecuted. We are praying that they would endure through the persecution and continue to proclaim the gospel, not live for the fleeting temporary things of this earth like comfort and safety, but that they would live for for, uh, uh, kingdom things, for eternal things, loving others, pointing others to Christ, making much of Christ, glorifying Christ, even if that means their life. And Paul is praying those same things here. He says, I I want you to have endurance and patience. And this patience literally means long-suffering for people. So he's saying, I pray that you would have endurance through through suffering, through trials, and I pray that you would have long-suffering for people. In other words, that you would be willing to suffer for the sake of people, to show people great grace, to see people through the grace-filled lenses that Christ does. To see people as people who are in need of a great Savior just as we are. And be willing to suffer for them and even die for them as Christ calls us to. Let's go on. Verse 12. Joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. The focus of this thanksgiving is not for having easy lives but rather that they would give thanks to God for being made children of God. 
Right, The focus of this thanksgiving, joyfully giving thanks to the Father too, who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. Paul's not saying thank God for making your life easy, for letting you live a long life, for not giving you cancer or pain or suffering or trials, giving you all your dreams. Right, and We, we tend to think of those things as blessedness in our, in our American minds today. I'm so blessed because I make this great salary and I have this great home and my life is easy. Paul is saying here, give thanks to God because you've been made a child of God. You are no longer your own. You've been purchased and bought by his blood. And he has drank all of God's wrath to the dregs for you. Not one drop is left for you, for those in Christ. And we see that here. Paul is saying this is the type of thanksgiving to give. Thanksgiving that you have been made a part of the saints' inheritance. Right, And so the, the context he was saying here is the inheritance that the, the, the children of Israel were to receive, which is heaven, right? Those who are in Christ, again, they are saved not because they're Israelites, but by Christ and Christ alone is the same inheritance that you will receive for Christ. He's talking to a group of Gentile people here. If you are in Christ, you have that same inheritance. We will live forever in his kingdom, forever worshiping him in the new heaven and the new earth, in paradise, worshiping Christ and Christ alone. That should make our hearts scream for joy. Verse 13, he has rescued us. I love how how Paul ends this prayer. These last two verses should really be the focus of this prayer. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he, he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. First thing we see here is that Christ has rescued us out of the domain of darkness. Again, putting things into perspective, we are not born inherently good. Our world tells us that. Our world tells us there's goodness within each of us and we just need to find it. And Christ says there's no one good but the Father. Right? We are born into darkness. We are wicked people who have rebelled against Christ. C.S. Lewis says it this way, we are not people who are inherently good, who are in need of a little bit of moral uh, behavior change. We are rebels against the kingdom of God who must lay our weapons down at the feet of the cross and say, I want to follow you. We, we are people who are automatically in that darkness because of our sin, but Jesus rescues us from that. I love the way Tim Keller talks about Christianity. And he says every other religion, the problem with it is there's this huge mountain and there's this God sitting on top of that mountain. And every religion tells you, you have to get to God. You have to be good enough. You have to do all you can to get to this peak. The problem is none of us can get there. We all miss that mark. We are inherently wicked and evil and children of wrath. So Jesus came off of that mountaintop. This is the difference. Jesus came down to get us, to rescue us. We cannot do that on our own. Jesus had to pay the price. Jesus took this wrath, uh, God's wrath upon himself, and he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. When we are changed by Jesus, we see him as light, and we see him as more glorious and beautiful than anything else. The one who has rescued you, right? When we realize that Jesus has rescued us 
from something much greater than any kind of worldly oppression, than any kind of physical oppression. He has, he has rescued us out of our slavery to sin, out of darkness, out of, out of being prey to the serpent. And he has rescued us and made us sons and daughters of the Most High King. We will see him as more beautiful and glorious than anything else when we put things into perspective. Paul intentionally uses an Exodus-like language here when he says he's, he's rescued us out of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. We see this as this greater Exodus story. The story of the, the, the Israelites um, being rescued out of Egypt is great and all, but there's a greater story, a greater Exodus story, and that's Jesus bringing us out of darkness into light. The point of that Exodus story is to point us to Christ. And see that Jesus brings us out of our, our slavery to sin, out of wickedness, out of darkness into light. That's the greater Exodus story. That Jesus and Jesus alone has taken God's wrath upon himself. And in him, verse 14, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul ends this prayer here. This is, this is how we should live our lives as people who, have, who realize the great grace and beauty of Christ. And realize that he has forgiven us a great debt and follow after him. Tim Keller says it like this. You are more sinful than you ever thought you were. Right? We think of our sin and, and we should be disgusted by our own sin. And we are more sinful than we ever could realize. But he also says, but you are more loved than you ever dreamed you could be. Right? We, we think we know God's love. We have not even touched the surface of it. You're more wicked. I'm more wicked than I can ever imagine. But I'm also more loved, and you are more loved than you can ever imagine by the great Savior, by the great King of the universe. And in Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's where we keep things into perspective. We walk by grace. Our entire life must be reliant on grace. Right? Grace is not for just the one time you walked the aisle or, or the one time that, that you decide to follow Jesus. Right? Grace is what should carry you throughout your life, realizing I have been forgiven a great debt and I want to serve that great Savior. It is that grace and that grace alone that allows me to follow after Christ, to make much of Christ, to glorify Christ. And our entire life must rely on that grace because he has chosen to forgive us on the cross. That should make us see his great beauty and great glory and desire to follow after him. I'm going to end this with just reading a chapter from Romans. Go to Romans chapter 8 and follow along. I love the way Francis Chan says this. He says, so often when we go to celebrations, we go to uh, birthday parties or weddings and we're celebrating someone, we, we say, uh, you know, hit our spoon against the glass and say, speech, speech, right? And we want someone to give a speech. And when, as they give that speech, we're hanging on every word, craving every word of that speech. Right? When we come here, we oftentimes check out when we see God's word written to us, right? His words, his spoken words on the page, and, and someone's reading that, and we say, yeah, this is, this is cool, but I've heard this before. And so, as Francis Chan says, he says, I'm going to end Francis' time, and now let's listen to God. I'm going to end Zach's time, right? If you've been sleeping the whole time, that's fine. It's not going to hurt me. But this is more important. This is more important than anything I have to say. 
This is God's spoken word. And in Romans 8, um, probably my favorite chapter in the Bible, and this just shows how great God's grace is, how great God's love is. We're going to read the entire chapter. That's how we'll end today. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is, that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. Really tune in here. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because he who intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own Son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not... Also with him grant us everything. 
Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for how wonderful and marvelous you are. Again, God, we pray that we would have our eyes opened, our hearts opened to see your glory and your beauty and fall more and more in love with you. God, we pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. God, that we would walk worthy of you. God, fully pleasing to you. God, cause us to bear good fruit in every good work. And again, that we would continue to grow in the knowledge of you. God, I pray that we'd be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might so that we would have great endurance and patience, that we would joyfully give thanks to you. You are the one who has enabled us to share in the saints' inheritance and the light. We thank you for that. Jesus, thank you that you have rescued us from the domain of darkness and you have transferred us into the kingdom of your Son. And God, in you and you alone, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and we praise you for that. And I pray that we would worship you and glorify you and magnify you in everything that we think, say, and do. God, that we'd be passionate for your word, for your for the knowledge of you. God, we'd be passionate about making disciples. We'd be passionate about the weightier things of this world. We wouldn't be focused on the lesser things, the temporary things, the things that will not matter 10 million years from now. But God, the things that, that you have called us to, to love others, to love one another, to love you, to glorify you, to make much of you, to make disciples, can make us about those things, all the while trusting completely in your grace, completely in your power, completely in your might. Jesus, thank you that you have all authority. We want to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. The invitation is, is here. I'll